32, E-Ghost, says he, the that's no rule, there's a staggerer, being alive no rule for not being buried, how is Molly Brown to get out of that high pressure cleft stick, how, that's the question, why not in a state of somnolency, not during the death of each day's life, Mumber it is clear, to escape such a consummation she must be wide awake, the poet sees this, and with the energy of a master mind, he brings the invisible chimera of her entranced imagination into effective operation. Argument with a man who denies first premises, and we submit the assertion that vitality is no exception to the treatment of the dead, amounts to that, we say. Argument with such a man is worse than nothing, it would be fallacious as the Aeolian experiment of whistling the most inspiriting jigs to an inanimate, and consequently unmusical, milestone. Opposing a transatlantic thunderstorm with a more paper than powder, penny cracker, or setting an owl to outstare the meridian sun. The poet knew and felt this, and therefore he ends the delusion and controversy by an overt act. The ghost then seized her all so grim, all for to go along with him. Come, come, said he, the ear morning beam, to which she replies with the following determined announcement, I want, said she, and screamed a scream. Then she evoked and found she dreamed a dream. These are the last words we have left to descant upon, they are such as should be the last, and, like Joe's of surface, moral to the end, the glowing passions the fervent hopes, the anticipated future, of the loving pair, all, all are frustrated. The great lesson of life imbues the elaborate production, the thinking reader, led by its sublimity to a train of deep reflection, sees at once the uncertainty of earthly projects, and sighing owns the wholesome, though still painful truth, that the brightest sun is ever the first cause of the darkest shadow, and from childhood upwards, the blissful visions of our gayest fancy forced by the cry of stern reality call back the mental wanderer from imaginary bliss, to be again the worldly drudge, and, thus awakened to his real state, confess, like our sad heroine, Molly Brown, he too, has dreamed a dream, F.U.S.B.O.S., Father O'Flynn and his congregation, Father Francis O'Flynn, or, as he was generally called by his parishioners, Father Frank, was the choicest specimen you could desire of a jolly, quiet-going, ease-loving, Irish country priest of the old school. His parish lay near a small town in the eastern part of the county Cork, and for forty-five years he lived amongst his flock, performing all the duties of his office, and taking his dues when he got them with never-tiring good humor. But age, that spares not priest nor layman, had stolen upon Father Frank, and he gradually relinquished to his younger curates the task of preaching, till at length his sermons dwindled down due to in the year one at Christmas, and the other at Easter, at which times his clerical dues were about coming in. It was on one of these memorable occasions that I first chanced to hear Father Frank address his congregation. I had him now before my mind's eye, as he then appeared, a stout, middle-sized man, with ample shoulders, enveloped in a coat of superfine black, and substantial legs encased in long straight boots, reaching to the knee, his forehead, and the upper part of his head, were bald, but the use of hair powder gave a fine effect to his massive, but good-humored features, that glowed with the rich tint of a hale old age, a bunch of large gold seals, depending from a massive jack chain of the same metal, oscillated with becoming dignity from the lower verge of his waistcoat, over the goodly prominence of his fair round belly glancing his half-closed, but piercing eye around his auditory, as if calculating the contents of every pocket present, he commenced his address as follows, well, my good people, 
I suppose ye know that tomorrow will be the pattern of Saint Finim, and no doubt you'll all be for going to the blessed well to say your pot hearings, but I'll go bail there's few of you ever heard the reason why the water of that well won't raise a lather, or wash anything clean, though you were to put all the soap and cork into it. Well, pay it to you, and I'll tell you, Mrs. Delaney, can't you keep your child quiet while I'm speaking? It happened a long while ago, that Saint Finim, a holy and devout Christian, lived all alone, convenient to the well, there he was to be found ever and always praying and reading his breviary upon a cloud stone that lay beside it. Unluckily enough, there lived also in the neighborhood a Kaliendas called Moreen, and this Moreen had a fashion of coming down to the well every morning, at sunrise, to wash her legs and feet, and, by all accounts, you couldn't meet a whiter or shapelier pair from this to Bantry. Saint Finim, however, was so distracted in his heavenly meditations, poor man, that he never once looked at them, but kept his eyes fast on his holy books, while Maureen was rubbing and lathering away, till the legs used to look like two beautiful pieces of alabaster in the clear water. Matters went on this way for some time, Maureen coming regular to the well, till one fine morning, as she stepped into the water, without minding what she was about, she struck her foot against a stone and cut it, pattern a corruption of patron means, in Ireland, the anniversary of the saint to whom a holy well has been consecrated, on which day the peasantry make pilgrimage to the well, beads pretty girl, oh, Millie a murder, what I do, cried the Kellyan, in the pitiful's voice you ever heard, what's the matter, said Saint Finim, I've cut my foot again this misfortune at stone, says she, making answer, then Saint Finim lifted up his eyes from his blessed book, and he saw Maureen's legs and feet. Oh, Maureen, says he, after looking a while at them, what white legs you have got, have I, says she, laughing, and how do you know that? Immediately the saint remembered himself, and being full of remorse and contrition for his fault, he laid his commands upon the well, that its water should never wash anything white again, and, as I mentioned before, all the soap in Ireland wouldn't raise a lather on it since. Now that's the through history of Street Finding's Blessed Well, and I hope and thrust it will be a sessionable and premonitory lesson to all the young men that hears me, not to fall into the venial sin of admiring the white legs of the girls. As soon as his reverence paused, a buzz of admiration ran through the chapel, accompanied by that peculiar rapid noise made by the lower class of an Irish Roman Catholic congregation, when their feelings of awe, astonishment, or piety, are excited by the preacher. The sound, which is produced by a quick motion of the tongue against the teeth and roof of the mouth, may be expressed thus, TDH, 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 Father Frank having taken breath, and wiped his forehead, resumed his address, I'm going to change my subject now, and I expect a tintion, Sean Barry, where's Sean Barry, here, your reverence, replies a voice from the depth of the crowd, come up here, Sean till I examine you about your catechism and doctrines. A rough-headed fellow elbowed his way slowly through the congregation, and molding his old hat into a thousand grotesque shapes, between his huge palms, presented himself before his pastor, with very much the air of a puzzled philosopher. Well, Sean, my boy, do you know what is the meaning of faith? Perfectly, your reverence, replied the fellow, with a knowing grin. Faith means when Patty Hogan gives me credit for half a pint of the best. Get out of my sight. You ancient vagabond, you're a disgrace to my flock. Here, 
Utomgoli, what's charity? Baiting a process sarver, your reverence, replied Tom, promptly. Oh, blessed saints, how I'm persecuted with ye, root and branch, Jim Hulagan, I'm looking at you, there, behind Peggy Callanane's cloak, come up here, you hanging bone sleeping and tell me what is the last day, a sly rogue, I didn't come to that yet, sir, replied Jim, scratching his head, I wouldn't fear you, you Boston, well, listen, and I'll tell you, it's the day when you'll all have to settle your accounts, and I'm thinking there'll be a heavy score against some of you, if you don't mind what I'm saying to you, when that day comes, I'll walk up to heaven and rap at the hall door, then street petter, who will be talking in that after dinner in his armchair, inside, and not liking to be disturbed, will call out mighty surly, who's there, it's I my lord, I'll make answer, baby course, he'll know my voice, and, jumping up like a cricket, he'll open the door as wide as the hinges will let it, and say quite politely, I'm proud to see you here, Father Frank, walk in if you plaza, upon that I'll scrape my feet, and walk in and then St. Peter will say again, well, Father Frank, what have you got to say for yourself, did you look well after your flock, and mine to have them all christened, and married, and buried, according to the rites of our holy church, now, good people, I've been forty-five years amongst you, and didn't I christen every mother's soul of you, congregation, you did, you did, your reverence, Father Frank, well, and didn't I bury the most of you, too, congregation, you did, your reverence, Father Frank, and didn't I do my best to get descent matches for all your little girls, I and didn't I get good wives for all the well-behaved boys in my parish, why don't you speak up, Mitt Donovan, Mitt. You did, your reverence, Father Frank. Well, that's settled, but then St. Peter will say, Father Frank, says he, you're a proper man, but how did your flock behave to you? Did they pay you your dues regularly? Ah, good Christians, how shall I answer that question? Put it in my power to say something good of you, don't be ashamed to come up and pay your priest's dues. Come, make a lane there, and let ye all come up with calm fright hearts and open hands. Tim Delaney. Make way for Tim, how much will you give? Tim, Tim, I'll not be worse than another. Your reverence, I'll give a crown. Father Frank, thank you. Timothy, the descent drop is in you. Keep a lane, there. Any of you that hasn't a crown, or half a crown, don't be bashful of coming up with your hog or your tester, a shilling or a sixpence. And thus Father Frank went on encouraging and wheedling his flock to pay up his dues until he had gone through his entire congregation, when I left the chapel, highly amused at the characteristic scene I had witnessed, ex a prudent reason, our gallant Sithorpe was lately invited by a friend to accompany him in a pleasure trip in his yacht to cows, no, exclaimed Sidot, you don't catch me venturing near cows, and why not, inquired his friend, because I was never vaccinated, replied the hirsute hero, Dr. Peel taking time to consult, once upon a time says an old Italian novelist a horse fell, as in a fit, with his rider, the people, running from all sides, gathered about the steed, and many and opposite were the opinions of the sudden malady of the animal, as many the prescriptions tendered for his recovery, at length, a great hubbub arose among the mob, and a fellow, with the brass of a merry Andrew, and the gravity of a quack doctor, pressed through the throng, and approached the beast, suddenly there was silence, 
It was plain to the vulgar that the solemn newcomer had brought with him some exquisite specific, it was evident, from the grave self-complacency of the stranger, that with a glance, he had detected the cause of sickness in the horse, and that, in a few seconds, the prostrate animal, revivified by the cunning of the sage, would be up, and once more curvetting and caracoling, the master of the steed and the stranger with an affectionate anxiety, the mob were awed into breathless expectation, the wise man shook his head, put his cane to his nose, and proceeded to open his mouth, it was plain he was about to speak, every ear throbbed and gaped to catch the golden syllables, at length the doctor did speak, forecasting about him a look of the profoundest knowledge, and pointing to the steed, he said, in a deep, solemn whisper, let the horse alone, saying this, the doctor vanished, the reader will immediately make the application, the horse John Bull is prostrate, it will be remembered that Colonel S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P. that Dull Mountebank spoke learnedly upon Glanders that others declared the animal needed a lighter burden and a greater allowance of corn, but that the majority of the mob made way for a certain Quacksalver Peel, who being regularly called in and feed for his advice, professed himself to be possessed of some miraculous elixir for the suffering quadruped. All eyes were upon the doctor all ears open for him, when lo, on the 16th of September, Peel, speaking with the voice of an oracle, said, It is not my intention in the present session of Parliament to submit any measures for the consideration of the House. In other words, let the horse alone. The praises of the Tory mob are loud and long at this wisdom of the doctor. He had loudly professed an intimate knowledge of the ailments of the horse he had long predicted the fall of the poor beast. And now, when the animal is down, and a remedy is looked for that shall once more set the creature on his legs, the veterinary politician says, let the horse alone. The speech of Sir Robiardi Peel was a pithy illustration of the good old Tory creed. He opens his oration with a benevolent and patriotic yearning for the comforts of parliamentary warmth and ventilation. He moves for papers connected with the building of the two houses of parliament, and with the adoption of measures for warming and ventilating those houses. The whole policy of the Tories has ever exemplified their love of nice warm places, though, certainly, they had not been very great sticklers for atmospheric purity. Indeed, like certain other laborers, who work by night, they have twelved in the foulest air, have profited by the most noisome labor. When Lord John Russell introduced that imperfect mode of ventilation, the reform bill, into the house, had he provided for a full and pure supply of public opinion, had he ventilated the commons by a more extended franchise, Sir Robiardi Peel would not, as minister, have shown such magnanimous concern for the creature comforts of members of parliament he might, indeed, have still displayed his undying love in a warm place, but he would not have enjoyed it on the bench of the treasury, as for ventilation, why, the creature Toryism, like a frog, could live in the heart of a tree, it being always provided that the tree should bear golden pippins, we can, however, imagine that the solicitude of Sir Robiardi for the ease and comfort of the legislative magi may operate to his advantage in the minds of certain honest folk, touched by the humanity which sheds so sweet a light upon the opening oration of the new minister, if, they will doubtless think, the humane baronet feels so acutely for the Lord's spiritual and temporal, if he has this regard for the convenience of only 658 knights and purchases, if, in his enlarged humanity, he can feel for so helpless a creature as the Earl of Coventry, so mild, so unassuming a prelate as the Bishop of Exeter if he can sympathize with the wants of even a Disraeli, and tax his mighty intellect to make even a Sibidhorp comfortable, 
surely the same minister will have, I, a morbid sense of the wants, the daily wretchedness of hundreds of thousands, who, with the thin corn law grinning at their fireless hearths pine and perish in weaver's hevels, for the which there has as yet been no adoption of measures for the warming and ventilating, surely, they will think, the man whose sympathy is active for a few of the meanest things that live will gush with sensibility towards a countless multitude, fluttering into a rags and gone with famine, he will go back to first principles, he will, with a giant's arm, knock down all the conventionalities built by the selfishness of man and what a labor is selfishness, there was no such hard worker at the pyramids or the wall of China between him and his fellow, hunger will be fed nakedness will be clothed and God's image, though stricken with age, and broken with disease, be acknowledged, not in the cut and dried pharisaical phrase of trading church gores, as a thing vested with immortality as a creature fashioned for everlasting solemnities but practically treated as of the great family of man a brother, invited with the noblest of the Caesars, to an immortal banquet, such may be the hopes of a few, innocent of the knowledge of the stony heartness of Toryism, for ourselves, we hope nothing from Sir Robiardi Peel, his flourish on the warming and ventilation of the new houses of Parliament, taken in connection with his opinions on the Corn Laws, reminds us of the benevolence of certain people in the East, who, careless and ignorant of the claims of their fellow men, yet take every pains to erect comfortable hospitals and temples for dogs and vermin. Old travelers speak of these places, and of men being hired that the sacred fleas might feed upon their blood. Now, when we consider the history of legislation when we look upon many of the statutes emanating from Parliament how often might we call the House of Commons the House of Fleas, to be sure. There is yet this great difference, the poor who give their blood there, and like the wretches of the East, give it for nothing. Sir Robiardi's speech promises nothing whatever as to his future policy. He leaves everything open. He will not say that he will not go in precisely the line chalked out by the Whigs. Next session, says, Sir Robiardi, you shall see what you shall see. About next February, Orson, in the words of the oracle in the melodrama, will be endowed with reason. Until then, we must accept a note of hand for Sir Robiardi, that he may pay the expenses of the government. I have already expressed my opinion, that it is absolutely necessary to adopt some measures for equalizing the revenue and expenditure, and we will avail ourselves of the earliest opportunity, after mature consideration of the circumstances of the country, to submit to a committee of the whole house measures for remedying the existing state of things whether that can be best done by diminishing the expenditure of the country, or by increasing the revenue, or by a combination of those two means the reduction of the expenditure and the increase of the revenue I must postpone for future consideration. Why? Sir Robiardi was called in because he knew the disease of the patient. He had his remedy about him. The pills and the draught were in his pocket yes, in his patriotic poke, but he refused to take the lid from the box resolutely determined that the cork should not be drawn from the all-healing file until he was regularly called in, and, as the gypsies say, his hand crossed with a bit of money, well, he now swears with such vigor to the excellence of his physic he so talks for hours and hours upon the virtues of his drugs, that at length a special messenger is sent to him, and directions given that the miraculous doctor should be received at the state entrance of the patient's castle. With every mark of consideration, the doctor is insured his fee, and he sets to a work. Thousands and thousands of hearts are beating whilst his eye scrutinizes John Bull's tongue suspense weighs upon the bosom of millions as the doctor feels his pulse. Well, these little ceremonies settled, the doctor will, of course, 
pull out his file, display his boluses, and take his leave with a promise of speedy health. By no means, I must go home, says the doctor, and study your disease for a few months, call simples by moonlight, and consult the whole materia medica, after that I'll write you a prescription. For the present, good morning, but, my dear doctor, cries the patient, I dismissed my old physician, because you insisted that you knew my complaint and its remedy already. That's very true, says Dr. Peel, but then I wasn't called in. The learned Baldius tells us that Ceylon doctors give jackals flesh for consumptions. Now, consumption is evidently John Bull's malady, hence, we would try the Ceylon prescription. The jackals are the landowners, take a little of their flesh, Sir Orobiardi, and for once, spare the bowels of the manufacturer. Q-punches pencilings, Munger's eye, Dunks's discoveries in the Thames, a highly important and interesting survey of the coast between Randall Stairs and Hungerford Market Pier, is now being executed, under the superintendence of Bill Banks, late commander of the coal barge, Jim Crow. The result of his labors hitherto have been of the most interesting nature to the natural historian, the antiquarian, and the navigator. In his first report to the magistrates of the Thames Police, he states that he has advanced in his survey to a water bridge stairs which he describes as a good landing place for wherries, funnies, and small craft, but inadequate as a harbor for vessels of great burden. The shore from Randall Street, as far as he has explored, consists chiefly of a tenacious, dark-colored substance, very closely resembling thick mud, intermixed with loose shingles, pebbles, and coal slates. The depth of water is uncertain, as it varies with the tide, which he ascertains rises and falls every six hours the greatest depth of water being usually found at the time when the tide is full in and vice versa. He has also made the valuable discovery, that a considerable portion of the shore is always left uncovered at low water, at which periods he availed himself of the opportunity afforded him of examining it more minutely, and of collecting a large number of curious specimens in natural history, and interesting antiquarian relics, as we have had the privilege of being permitted to view them in the private museum of the Stangate and Millbank both sides of the water united for the advancement of science association. We are enabled to lay before our readers the particulars of a few of these spoils, which the perseverance and intrepidity of our gallant countryman, Bill Banks, has rescued from the hungry jaws of the rapacious deep, viz. 1. A case of shells. The greater number of the specimens are pronounced, by competent judges, to be shells of the native oyster, a fact worthy of note, as it proves the existence in former ages, of an oyster bed on the spot, and oysters being a sea fish, it appears evident that either the sea has removed from London, or London has withdrawn itself from the sea. The point is open to discussion. We hope that the Hukankunsnidi institution will undertake the solution of it at one of their early meetings. 2. The neck of a black bottle, with a cork in it. This is a very interesting object of art, and one which has given rise to considerable discussion amongst the literati. The cork, which is inserted in the fragment of the neck, is quite perfect, it has been impressed with a seal in reddish-colored wax, a portion of it remains, with a partly obliterated inscription, in Roman characters, of which we have been enabled to give the accompanying facsimile. With considerable difficulty we have deciphered the legend thus, the first letter B has evidently been a mistake of the engraver, who meant it for a P. The similarity of the sounds of the two letters being very likely to lead him into such an error. With a slight alteration, we have only to add the letter O to the first line, and we shall have pro. 
It requires little acuteness to discover that the second word, if complete, would be P-A-D-R-I-A, and the letters B-R, the two lowest of the inscription. Only want the addition of the letters it to make Brit, or B-R-I-D-A-N-N-I-A-R-U-M. The legend would then run, Pro-P-A-D-R-I-B-R-I-D-A-N-N-I-A-R-U-M, which there is good reason to suppose was the inscription on the cellar seal of Alfred the Great, though some presumptuous and common-minded persons had asserted that the legend, if perfect, would read, Brett's patent brandy, every antiquarian has, however, indignantly refused to admit such a degrading supposition, 3, a perfect brick, and two broken tiles, the first of these articles is in a high state of preservation, and from the circumstance of portions of mortar being found adhering to it, it is supposed that it formed part of the old London wall, we examined the fragments of the tiles carefully, but found no inscription or other data, by which to ascertain their probable antiquity, the tiles, in short, are buried in mystery. 4. A fossil flat iron. The sanded alluvian relic was found embedded in a sandy deposit opposite Surrey Street, near high water mark. 5. An ancient leather buskin, supposed to have belonged to one of the Saxon kings. The singular covering for the foot reaches no higher than the ankle, and is laced up the front with a leathern thong, like a modern high-low to which it bears a very decided resemblance. 6. A skeleton of some unknown animal. Antiquarians cannot agree to what genus this animal belonged. Ignorant people imagine it to have been a cat. 7. A piece of broken porcelain. This is an undoubted relic of Roman manufacture, and appears to have formed part of a plate. The blue willow pattern painted on it shows the antiquity of that popular design. There are several other extremely rare and curious antiquities to be seen in this collection which we have not space to notice at present, but shall take an early opportunity of returning to the valuable discoveries made by the indefatigable Mr. Banks, a new conjuring company. A report of so extraordinary a nature has just reached us, that we hasten to be the first, as usual, to allay the outlines of it before our readers, with the same early authenticity that has characterized all our other communications. Mr. Yates is at present in Paris, arranging matters with Louis Philippe and his family to appear at the Adelphi during the ensuing season. It would appear that the mania for great people wishing to strut and fret their four hours and a quarter upon the stage is on the increase at least according to our friends the constituent members of the daily press. Despite the newspaper death of the manager of the Surrey, by which his enemies wished to spark the voices in vulgar ambiguous to his prejudice which means, in plain English, to tell lies of him behind his back. We have seen the report contradicted that Mrs. Norton was about to appear there in a new equestrian spectacle, with double platforms, triple studs of charter hordes, and the other amphitheatrical enticers. We ourselves can declare, that there is no foundation in the announcement, no more than in the audit that the Countess of Blessington was engaged as a counter-attraction, for a limited number of nights, that the Victoria, or her lovely niece of power in herself had been prevailed upon to make her debut at the Lyceum in a new piece of a peculiar and unprecedented plot, which was prevented from coming off by some disagreement as to terms between the principal parties concerned. For true theatrical intelligence, our columns alone are to be relied upon, bright as a column of sparkling water, overpowering as a column of English cavalry, overlooking all London at once, as the column of the monument, but not so heavy as the column of the Duke of York. Mise revenons and nos moutons, which implies we are again compelled to translate, and this time it is for the benefit of those who have not been to Boulogne. We spoke of Louis Philippe and his family, this sagacious monarch, 
foreseeing that the French were in want of some new excitement, and grieving to find that the pomp funebre of Napoleon, and the inauguration of his statue upon the monument of the victories that never took place, had not made the intense impression upon the minds of his vivacious subjects that he had intended it should produce, begins to think, that before long a fresh mood will once more throw up the barricades and paving stones in the Rue Street Honor and Boulevard des Italiens, as such, with the prudent foresight which has hitherto directed all his proceedings, he is naturally looking forward to the best means of gaining an honest livelihood for himself and family, should a corrupted National Guard, or an excited Saint Antoine mob take it into their heads to dine in the Tuileries without being asked, having read in the English newspapers, which he regularly peruses, of the astounding performances of the Wizard of the North at the Adelphi, more especially as regards the paralyzing gun delusion. He commences to imagine that he is well qualified to undertake the same responsibility, more especially from the practice he has had in that line from pistols, rifles, fowling pieces, and, above all, 20-barrel infernal machines. He has therefore offered his services at the Adelphi, and Mr. Yates, with his accustomed energy, and avowed propensity for French translations, has agreed to bring him over. If we remember truly, the wizard says in his program, that the secret shall die with him, we beg to inform him, in all humility, that he deceives himself, for Louis Philippe and the Duke d'Ormail know the trick as well as he does, they would ride through two lines of sans culottes, all armed to the teeth, without the least injury, they would catch the bullets in their teeth, and take them home as curiosities, or Leon, from his knowledge of the English language, will probably become the adapter of the pieces, from the French, about to be produced. The Dutton and Mowers will be engaged to play the fops in the light comedies, a line which, it is anticipated, he will shine in, and the Prince de Joinville can dance a capital sailor's hornpipe, which he learned on board the Belle a name which our own sailors, with an excusable disregard for genders, converted into the Jolly Cock. Of course, from his late experience, Dormail will assist Louis Philippe, upon emergency, in the gun truth, and, with the other attractions, a profitable season is sure to result, an extensive sacrifice, by Drive Reed's new plan for ventilating the House of Commons, a porous hair carpet will be required for the floor, to provide materials for which Mr. Muntz has, in the most handsome manner, offered to shave off his beard and whiskers, five, 